And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm your host for this weekly series on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is a series about manufacturing change. It's a period of dramatic change. So during this period, yes, we look at the headlines. We think about how political events and economic events affect the U.S. manufacturing sector. They have dramatic impacts on U.S. manufacturing performance. But, of course, we have to look deeper. This is a complex time of technological disruption, geopolitical disruption, demographic disruption, and we have to consider the impacts of all of this. The key word here is new, new science, new technology, a new manufacturing workforce, new economic thinking. And we are here to help our listeners to understand how all of this is contributing to a new manufacturing story. Thus far, our guests have helped us to think in a macro perspective. How is all of this changing the U.S. manufacturing sector? How is it changing the economy? How is it contributing to policy? How are our institutions that think about trade, think about monetary and fiscal policy, how are they going to interact with these dramatic changes in the manufacturing sector? Today, we're going to add a dimension to our show, because while the macro's perspective is important, and we will continue to consider it, we also have to think about the perspective of the manufacturing executive, the manufacturing company that has the stresses of branding itself, of selling its own products into the market at a time when the supply, everything is changing, when the supply chain is changing, when the customer is changing, when the workforce is changing. Today, I have a stellar executive, somebody who has had remarkable experience in manufacturing companies, in the business world generally, and because of that remarkable experience, he is a very respected voice in the business world. My guest today is Francois Goh. He's an experienced senior executive uh, leader. Francois has delivered results in enterprise strategy development, marketing and growth strategies, and operations management. He has two decades of experience in leadership roles, guiding sales and operations strategies for companies as large as $20 billion. Through performance management and team leadership, he was able to drive threefold revenue growth in his division. As a consultant these days, working with clients, Clients, Francois helps develop and execute business growth strategies. Design, he designs marketing and sales blueprints, coaches and mentors key executives and emerging talent. He drives innovation with product management and engineering, and he facilitates team building and engagement workshops. He's an award-winning executive and consultant, receiving recognition in the form of awards for superior results in strategy technology, customer service, talent development, and organizational excellence. 
He is certified in ISBM Green Belt for Growth, Competitive Strategy from the very respected uh, Kellogg University, and Six Sigma Lean. He holds a Master's in Business Administration from the University of Phoenix in Arizona and a Bachelor's Degree in Business Administration from the Institute, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, uh, Francois, the Institute of Formation, Ella Gestion, is that correct? This is correct, Cliff. Gestion of Toulouse, France. He was also a student of the University Paul Sabatier in Toulouse in mathematics and physics. He's a native of France, and he's fluent in three languages. He's very active in his community, and he has assisted his local United Way in raising a million dollars. He currently lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with his family. I'm very proud to say that I've known Francois for a long time, from my days as an economist at Napi. Francois, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Cliff, and thank you. Uh, for the, the, the manufacturing show to give us the opportunity to uh, be on the show today. Thank you to our listeners. Huh. You know, so much to talk about. I have had, as I said, I've had discussions with recent guests on the implications of technological disruption, demographic change, and the attacks that we are gradually seeing on the modern model of global trade that are so important to manufacturing. But as I said, the discussions thus far have been macro-focused, centering around the implications of all this for U.S. manufacturing growth, for competitiveness, for job creation. Today, we're going to, with you, take more of a micro-perspective and describe the impact of this period of dramatic change on the individual manufacturing company. So to do that, let me start with a general question. Would you describe the structure of U.S. manufacturing company management as being in a state of flux or new positions being added or old ones being dropped? What would you say to that? Well, Cliff, um, I think it's just evident then that we are in a state of flux when, with respect to jobs and functions and leadership position. It's not just manufacturing. It's all over the board, but it's impacting manufacturing in many ways. So I have to kind of set the clock back to 2005, um, where it's been said by experts, this is the beginning of what is so-called the digital era. So back then, we started to have the impact of the internet. We started to have the impact of automation. We started to have the impact of integration of systems. And as the major recessions came through, um, we've seen an erosion of talent and a focus now on what is called very skilled labor in manufacturing. That's probably the biggest driver. Uh, currently, companies are looking, if you look at Zip Recruiter and some of the other places we've been able to look at, um, <clears throat> you look at me- mechanical engineers and quality control inspectors, CNC machine operator, assembly line, you know, all these jobs required to pass a math test at the very minimum, and understand all the um, automation that's behind it in terms of CAM, right, computer-aided manufacturing that emerged in the late 80s and early 90s as as a mainframe in our shops, ERP, Enterprise Resource uh, Planning, 
PLM, product line management software, and on and on and on, we've added a degree of automation into our systems and manufacturing that requires a very, very specific set of skills. And if you're unskilled or not trained on those platforms or not willing to be, chances are you are going to be retiring or displaced. It goes the same in management when I look at the firms I've been, I've been able to work at and since then consult with. Um, the impetus of automation in every line of work in manufacturing, from production to engineering to customer service, sales, et cetera, and et cetera, all require now a higher degree of understanding of those automated tools to be successful in those jobs. And if we look at operations leaders, if we look at IT leaders, if we, if we look at sales leaders in those manufacturing jobs, chances are that we're seeing a shift in, in position in terms of looking for those people, those quantity qualifiers. So, yes, it, we're seeing a shift, and it's primarily driven by digitization stroke automation. Well, like a lot of interviewers, I suppose, I'd like to ask – extreme questions just to make interesting points. I'm going to ask you, what would you say is the most, is the most daunting challenge for the success of a, of a U.S. manufacturing company? And, and that's a wide-ranging entity. But the, the most daunting challenge in the U.S. manufacturing sector there for their marketing strategy to have arisen in, let's say, the past five years. What, what, what's the biggest problem that has arisen in the past five years for a U.S. manufacturing company to have a successful marketing strategy? Well, I think I'm going to boil it to one word. Um, the, it's a very challenging time um, to, to, to get your voice heard out there in this rapidly changing demographics that we see in manufacturing. But I'm going to extend it to business to business in general because manufacturers typically sell something to another OEM or another person out there that's going to assemble, integrate their product into something else that's been entailed. So if I'm, if I'm General Motors, if I am Honda, if I'm Boeing, if I am whomever, I'm using manufacturers in tiers, tier one, tier two, tier threes, et cetera, and et cetera. The further down you are, the further down you are in that tier structure, the hardest it is, and it's been accelerating as fast and furious I can think of over the past five years, it's really hard to have a voice. And it's very crowded out there. I don't know about you guys, but I receive about 20, 30 emails a day from people I've never heard of wanting to sell me something from, from anywhere in the world. So the frontiers have disappeared. Um, the boundaries have disappeared. Uh, we're in the global market that we like it or not. And we're faced with e-auctions, market sites, Buy my stuff. Um, it, it's it, it's a plethora of providers now that allows your voices to be heard. But as a result of that, you have a diminishing impact on those messages because no one wants to receive those hundreds of emails a day. No one wants to receive a phone call that is not expected, right? So the biggest challenge is to get your brand your brand and your, your um, 
your message is heard in that very, very difficult to to grasp environment. So let me give you an example. If you're a manufacturer of parts in the middle of the Midwest in the U.S., and your tier three supplier call it a job shop, general engineering, and you're trying to make a name of yourself in the world of digital marketing today, it's very hard to make an impression. Oh, yeah, you're going to make a lot of impressions. But like I say, usually I say to my clients, I said, you, you're going to make a lot of impressions, but what matters is conversion. Okay. So if I have 100,000 impressions out there because I've done a digital campaign or an email campaign or some kind of blog or some kind of social media presence, it doesn't matter until it's converted into an order or some kind of a relationship that we're going to have going forward. So to me, the, the biggest challenge out there is the affluence, the number of outlets, the number of medias that, that you need to reach to, to have those inversion, impression turn into conversions. That's probably the biggest challenge. Um, the second is the demographic component of it. We, we've been seeing it happening. Uh, I do recall the state of the, um, the, 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 the manufacturing research that was done recently by one of your colleagues out there. And about two-thirds of the buyers are so-called millennials or, or Generation Z. And they process buying decisions very differently than, than what we've been used for the past decade and, and, and longer back then, which were, where relationships matter and coming every day and having a conversation by phone and all that. It's not disappearing but it's less and less relevant. Now it's said that two-thirds of those buyers actually have made their mind before they call somebody. They know what they're going to buy and why. So your biggest challenge is to be part of that conversation with a group of people that may or may not know what you do and who you are. So infinity of channels, infinity of media, and demographic changes are probably the two biggest down daunting challenge, if I want to use the expression, for any manufacturers today to be heard. And that's really hard. Harder and harder to gain market traction, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a follow-up question, though, just to, just to look at this from another point of view. I, I hear the difficulties in, in your discussion about gaining market traction. But let me ask you something mm-hmm. on the other side of it. Isn't it also true that we are living in an era where customer and market data are increasingly abundant? It may be it certainly may be harder to catch the attention of that important customer, but at the same time we know more about the customer. Isn't that correct? Is that a bit of a compensating factor? It is. Um it is, and I, 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 yeah, it, it is. Um, this customer and market data is increasingly abundant, and you got some providers out there that talk about maybe data scientists that we need to hire in manufacturing because there's so much out there. Um, I want, I want to also kind of at one point we need to go back into inside and outside um, um, relationship, and I'll come back to this in a, in a moment or two. But I think. If you pay if you pay attention to the, the, the systems that are available today for accessing customers, um, reaching them in places that they go for 
finding ideas. Um, if you're very particular about your strategy on how to reach those customers and not messaging one size fit all, um, those tools, as you mentioned, those data aggregation tools are becoming very, very astute into giving you perspectives on how to reach. I call this these watering holes, okay? This mm-hmm. is like where customers, where, where people like me, you, everybody goes for inspiration. I am a fan of aviation, as you probably know. I'm a fan of cars. I go to the website, and from time to time, I'll find an ad, an ad placement for something actually I might be interested into. So no longer do we have to follow the trade, the, 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 the true and tried route of going to the um, industry association, the trade magazine, and placing ads, and doing all that brand um, messaging that one size fits all. We also have to implement now very discrete strategies on how to reach the people we want to reach in the places they want to be reached with the messages that drive emotions. I'm sounding general when I say that. We, we did this, the place of work I was before, and we had remarkable traction by thinking a little differently about how to reach customers the way they wanted to be reached. And it starts by identifying and being very clear as to who is your intended persona that will buy or consider your product or service. So that's kind of, yeah, there is a lot of data out there, probably more than anybody would have ever cared to look at. Um, And it's very um, diffused out there. But the good ones are starting to make a difference by being very particular as to who they want to talk to and how they're going to reach them. And that's the key. Let's talk about the word team. I, I, I actually had a lot of discussions and and learned a lot about the team concept in my days as, as a manufacturing economist. I would imagine that with more market data and a harder-to-reach and generally more impatient customer – that the customer-facing team in a manufacturing company has to change. Can you describe the basic changes that you have seen in the customer-facing team these days in U.S. manufacturing companies? Absolutely. Uh, first off, you've got to be absolutely responsive. Um, I think you and I talked before about this era of being of the, what what I call instant gratification, um, yes. it's like as people, as people, we are used to buying from Amazon, eBay, and any other of those portal sites out there with instant gratification. I can see some stock, I can have a price, I can pay easily, my transaction is followed through, I receive messages, I even get a message for UPS or FedEx up to my door, et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera. So from a consumer perspective for a moment, this is what we've been accustomed. And some of the folks out there that are in, 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 in those positions, that's, frankly, that's all they've known because they're from that demographic era that press a button, you get it, right? So the, frankly speaking, the old days of, you know, um, reaching out and, you know, um, developing a relationship with the customer. It's still important. But instant gratification is what I would encourage every one of the manufacturers to think of in their strategic uh, decisions 
going forward. This is probably the most significant change out there in, in, in the world of manufacturing today. It's very rare that I find a manufacturer that has the capability to instantly respond to a court request. Uh, we need to do engineering. We need to process this through this and this channel. We need to check with our vendors. We need to do this and that, this and that, and this and that. Hey, we've invested millions and billions of dollars for the U.S. scale into automation, digitization, connection of systems. I know what my machine is doing at any given second. I know which tool is engaged. I, need to, I know which part is in process. I know, I know which of my technicians are working in which department on which part. All of that is available, but we haven't taken the step to migrate our customer-facing teams to leverage that data. That's probably one of the biggest challenges going forward, and that's what needs to happen. You cannot just, I'll call you back in two weeks with a quote. By that time, somebody else will have provided the part to that client. This is not not, uh, workable anymore. So... Talking to, to my manufacturing peers out there, this is one thing I'm encouraging to with every one of my clients and, and customers is to think strategically on how can you leverage the data that you have in your shop and make it available almost instantly to customer that wants to have an answer. Um, so if you think about inside sales, outside sales, if I look at the very traditional method of, of, of addressing um, uh, client-facing staffing, at the manufacturing company, you have customer service, you don't have inside sales, and you have outside sales, okay? And you can expand that to relationship with distribution partners and all the other things you can think about. That needs to be augmented by instant uh, availability of data in a way a customer, a consumer wants to see. Uh, Does that make sense to you? It does, but I'm going to push the question even a little further, uh, we're talking about data and technique. Is is this era of the demands of instant gratification going to the point where a whole new business model is needed? Is, is it ex- is it stretching to the point of demanding a new business model from the manufacturer? It is, definitely is. Um, your entire operation. This is not just a marketing and sales thing. This says, if you say you're going to do it instantly at the price of X, you need to make sure your entire organization is geared toward that very rapidly shuffling, scheduling. Everything is moving, you know, at speed of light, right? You don't know in in the next minute what's going to be an order from whom and for what and to when. So you have your entire business model has to be shifted around agility, and complete transparency throughout the process, which is not quite there yet in many of the places that I've seen and, and been at. Uh, there are some companies and software companies that are starting to help people get there, uh, but it's still a lot of work in process. And some of you will say, well, yeah, but that doesn't apply to me because I'm a very difficult uh, sales process. I have to understand exactly what the customer wants. I get to go back and forth. Yeah, yeah, of course, all that is important. But once you cut information, how fast can you respond? And maybe the question is better phrased as, how faster can you respond than that of your competition? And this is where these, these, business, um, these business models come into play. I, I, 
if, if I have a few seconds, I would try to explain it in three terms, right? Is your strategy aligned where the market really is? So have you really understood the demographics of your customers and who's making buying decisions and why? That's the first question I would ask. Go through the customer journey of today, not the customer journey of yesterday. How do they make their buying decision? And then from there, have you got enough data in your system and is it accessible by sort of by, by sort of aggregation system that will allow you to have instant visibility on your capacity, on your lead times, on your people availability, all this sort of thing. It's like think of it as an airline for a second, right? Um, if I plan a, a flight in September of this year to go to Honolulu, I kind of know when I'm going to depart from where and I need some kind of cruise, but the airlines have been working on those systems for years, but they sell tickets now, right, at a certain price. It's the same thing for us in manufacturing. We have to switch the business model to start taking some risks in terms of our supply chain, in terms of our manufacturing capability, build some flex into it, and some agility. That's a complete different model. You're not building to stock. You're building to demand. And that's a very different approach when, when you think about it in, in a deeper way. And then, of course, uh, your, your customer-facing team has to be aligned um, and trained to those new demographic and how to respond faster. Um, I'm, I'm working with one client right now uh, on, 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 on CR integration and so forth, and we try to respond within 24 hours with the goal to be responding to 75% of those requests instantly. So we're building systems around systems to allow us to, to be able to respond almost immediately to 75% of the requests that, that we feel are possible, and then the rest of it will be elevated with the goal to respond within 24 hours. And that's a magnitude change compared to our current um, lead times. It is. Once again. And that, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say that I'm, I'm thinking about our audience listening to your response, and our audience is going to come from a wide range of manufacturing industries. Manufacturing is a big space. So thinking about you know, the, the business model change that you're talking about, I would imagine that it's not a one-size-fits-all um, paradigm when you're talking about such a wide range of manufacturing industries. So what I'm going to ask you to do is please give us some insight as, how, as to how the development of the new business model for the new customer may differ somewhat by market sector. Oh, wow, that's a loaded question. Um, of course it is. Um, just trying to, 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 to get two or three very different manufacturing examples here in a very rapid-fire order. Um, if I am in a scheduled manufacturing environment, for instance, um, I'm making seats for cars or parts for seats for cars, um, when I know my customer has a pretty solid build-up schedule, um, and even that is subject to, to debate with the new, the new order your car right now that I see from certain OEMs where you can select your options and then you can have your car delivered within days. Um, I had this experience myself buying one of those cars where I could select all the options and have it built and delivered within five days. So it's already kind of there, 
But if I am a tier manufacturer in the auto industry making seats and parts for seats, um, I need I need to be thinking about those dynamism and adjust my my supply chain correctly. All the the polymers, all the all the injected molded parts, all the the stamped parts, all the machine parts, everything has to be flexible to the point where I can make a change relatively quickly. So this is a scheduled industry. We know how many, roughly how many SUVs and sedans this guy's going to make and which color and whatever. Therefore, I can somewhat have a good prediction, but it's not 100% accurate. It will never be. So that's a, a predictive industry. Um, when you're in some industry where rapid prototyping is the key, right? So you're in dental, right, where you make a special insert for a patient and every part's going to be different. Who's going to win? Who's going to win the job? Can, can the patient wait two weeks to have the part done? Or can you make it within hours? And that's the kind of unscheduled, completely, um, um, uh, I would, it's custom-made parts. Everyone is different. It's rapid prototyping. It's, it's, it's parts that requires a high degree of customization. This is even more important to be responsive because you have now 3D printing coming to play and some spectacular companies are starting to enter that market and providing some turnaround time less than a day uh, to get your parts. That's phenomenal. So how do we compete? If we're a, a traditional manufacturers of dental implants or anything that needs to be highly customized, how do I compete with that new dimension, right? And that systems, um, the production mechanism, it's all, it's all, you know, connected. So I gave you two opposite examples. One is predictable and one is completely unpredictable, right? Interesting. Does that make sense? does indeed. You know, if you look back on history, periods of dramatic change often at times give rise to conflicts in leadership. And I, I would imagine that the politics of the C-suite in manufacturing companies, the manufacturing company C-suite must be intensifying in this era, era of rapid customer change. What, what are some predictable conflicts these days that we might be seeing in the C-suite? Well, it comes to how we measure things, to be honest with you. Um, so I'm going to take two polar opposites, right? into a typical C-suite, as you mentioned. One is the head of sales, um, and the other one is the head of a manufacturing operations, depending on how you call those two opposites. Um, it's an age-old challenge to make those two worlds coincide in, 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 and then work together. But in this age of agility and speed of change and demand variation every second, um, it's even more crucial to have the right folks and right mindsets in your leadership team to really see how, because, you know, if you need to change your manufacturing operation, this is not instant. You need to order the machine sometime years before you need them because they need time to be built, installed, and implemented into the manufacturing floor, tested and operationalized, and all these sort of questions, right? So as a leadership team, it depends on the size of the company, but I'm thinking, you know, pretty, pretty significant size manufacturing company, 
you have to have a strategic plan well, well tuned to understand the dynamic changes that may happen and have some form of a agreed upon at the leadership level response to those changes. If they occur, what's the impact? And if they occur, what is our response? So, for instance, if I'm in the medical field making implants, right, and I'm making it the traditional way and I'm being taken over by uh, somebody that makes it faster or cheaper than me for whatever reason, um, how do I respond to this? What is my operational response and my sales and marketing response? It's totally polar opposites, but they have different um, measures, right? One is measured on the cost per unit and the time cycles and the manufacturing variances and all sorts of things. And the other one is, is, is measured on growth and retention and so forth. So those metrics are not aligned. Um, and the key to this is to find a common set of metrics that everybody can live with and they can see in the future enough and time so that all of those changes can be adopted. Um, that's where, you know, rubs can occur when you have folks that might not be willing to embrace those sorts of changes and not being managed to it. That's probably the last one that's probably more important. Well, many, clearly, many, many layers of challenge here. Given that, let's talk about success, meaning what does it look like? How does a manufacturing company marketing team know, quote-unquote know, when the process of adapting to new technological, demographic, and trade realities has been successful? How, how does the, uh, the model manufacturing company in this period of time know when they've hit the mark? No, that's a preloaded question, Cliff, but let me just answer with one um, maybe controversial thing. Um, I'm a big fan of Romy, which is return on marketing investment. Um, depending on what your, um, you know, net income to sales ratio is. But your Romy, your return on marketing spend needs to be at least a magnitude above that net income ratio. Let me explain what that means. If I spend $100,000 in marketing, just, just pretend for a second, what kind of result will I have discreetly with regards to that $100,000 spent? So the easiest way of thinking, and it, this is a bit controversial, is did I get more net income period over period than I spent on marketing, regardless of the source or the origin or whatever, that's the first check. Would I have grown my business more than the delta spent on marketing over the same period to offset at the net income level, okay? So that's Romy for me. That's the first thing I'm going to look if my marketing spend is returning the results expected in the product line and all the service or the division or whatever. That's the first thing, right? If Romy is in excess of net income, then I'm cool. Then the next layer is to measure customer satisfaction. Um, folks will know NPS, net promoter score, um, be diligent about this 
invest in understanding how your customer gets their ideation. Really deep dive into where did they get the momentum to buy. Is it from a campaign for marketing? Is it from um, some kind of visit from a sales partner or ourselves? Uh, did they hear it from a buddy of theirs and et cetera and et cetera. So voice of the customer trying to understand how did they choose their current brand and products and service. That's probably the second thing. And you need to tie that up to your marketing, the marketing campaigns because that's really critical. And then this is going to start to feel a little bit off field but you have to, un- to, to really look into how your customers are interacting with your brand in the digital world. So we hear a lot about social media, blogs, newsletter, target campaign, digital banners, all that stuff. You need to start kind of measuring every one of those campaign elements vis-a-vis of their impact to the bottom line. It can be done today, Um, takes a little bit of sweat, Uh, but really when you start thinking about return on manufacturing, uh, on on, uh, marketing investment, you have to really put together the customer journey, the customer feedback, the impact of the campaigns, and the traffic you get on the digital world around those campaign elements. That's kind of what success means to me. If, if, I, if I've grown a, a meaningful fraction above my marketing spend to offset my cost at the net income level, I think that's when I call it a success. As a final question, let's talk about falling short. In your experience, when business development programs fall short of expectations, is it due to poor conception or more to poor execution, or is it often a hybrid of the two? I think it's usually a hybrid of the two. Um, we, we have campaigns that we do for our clients and customers that just flop. And sometimes we are reaching the wrong audience. Um, we haven't done our personal research correctly, and, um, or a message is not adapted to what they want to hear. So it's not impactful. So wrong audience, wrong messaging, that could be um, a, good, a, good, a good fit. But again, with the data available today, you can find this out really quickly, like almost instantly, and react within minutes or days. Um, so the other thing that's really interesting and in this concept of operating in a vacuum, I see it, I see it in a lot of manufacturing um, places I work into where – we have one-size-fits-all messages going out to traditional outlets and also being repurposed into digital places. And it's all the same message going in multiple ways. Um, That's usually bound for failure, right? Where you're going to have some traction. You still need a a bit of generic brand maintenance. I coach my clients to be about 20 25% of their budget being in brand maintenance. The rest of it has to be very targeted. And that's that's where that's where you need to course correct. So um, I think it's it's a bit of both um, the conception and the execution. Um, I, I'm witness at times in conflicts of interest. Don't take it the legal nature of it, but 
if marketing or somebody in the organization say, hey, today we're launching a promotion, buy two, you get one free, right? And then mm-hmm. maybe sales, sales and or the distribution channels are not aware of it, and the execution is at fault because the idea was great, the timing was probably sounded right, and the expectation were carefully thought about, right? But the execution lacked in the fact that we didn't really train all of our customer-facing teams on what the promotion would entail, what we would look to, look to do, and if they were trained, well, maybe not every one of them did what they were supposed to do. So this is where automation comes in again, and you can better prepare for your campaign um, using those kinds of things to smooth up a bit the execution. It's a human thing. Um, all the plans, all the best laid plans, execution trump them by 10x. Okay, so that's that's one mm-hmm. of the things I've learned over the years. So strategy, I mean execution eats strategy for breakfast. That's a, <laughs> I don't know who said that, but but I like that a lot. <laughs> Francois Go, you gave us your time, you gave us your expertise. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Cliff. Really appreciate the opportunity. How about that, listeners? We move from a macro perspective, this episode to a business perspective, and they are very consistent. Whether we're talking to a leading business expert like Francois or a leading ex- economics expert as we have in Washington, D.C., they're telling us the same thing, changes in models. Changes in paradigms happening rapidly, happening almost in a murky manner. We're going to continue to talk to business people. More and more, I'm going to do that. I'm also going to continue to talk to leading policy thinkers. Together, they will help us to clarify this dramatic period of change for the U.S. manufacturing sector. Until next time. But our coming episodes, this is Cliff Waldman reminding you that manufacturing matters. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.